Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is sponsored by Versify. Versify is a show where people tell their stories and then hear their words turned into poetry. The poets listen carefully as people tell stories, then they take what they hear and they turn those words into original poems. Then they recite them back to the storyteller. Here's how host Joshua Moore describes Versify. In every episode of Versify, we focus in on one person's story, paying special attention not only to what they say, but the way they say it. Inside these small exchanges, our poets form connections with their storytellers. They gain insights into their lives because they care to listen closely. There's honestly a sort of magic in the way these writers can take the briefest intimacy, weave it into a work of art, and offer it back as a gift, not only to our participants, but also to our listeners. Versify is a show from Nashville Public Radio and PRX. Stories and poems are gathered with the help of The Porch, which is a nonprofit literary center. And the host, Joshua Moore, is a 27-year-old local poet and Nashville native who helped develop The Porch's existing Poetry on Demand project. In addition to launching Versify, he's working on his MFA in the prestigious Vanderbilt University Creative Writing Program. You can find Versify on your podcatcher of choice or visit versifypodcast.com. That's V. E-R-S-I-F-Y podcast.com. You're listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 219, and today we are talking about books being released on July 30th, 2019, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Alice Burton, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Alice! Yay! Liberty! Oh my gosh, we're finally doing this. I'm so excited that you're here, and I only had to pay you $10 to come on the show. I mean, that's it. I, uh... I'm happy to be here, somewhat representing nonfiction. I uh, I co-host the For Real podcast, Book Riot's nonfiction podcast. And yeah, anytime I can like talk some nonfiction and this time fiction, which is such a switch up, I'm very excited. Yeah, that's why I gave you lots of advance notice. Because <laughs> I knew like this was this was strange for you to like read things that were made up. <laughs> so but I'm very excited you're here. Alice is one of my favorite people. And oh you're such goodness. a nerd. Just the honor. I yes. love it. That's true. Yeah. I'm just so delighted by all the things that you know. And the True Story podcast. And Kim. Uh, Kim, so, my, yeah, Kim did this podcast before, right? Uh, yep. A couple weeks ago. A few weeks ago. Time goes Kim by really is fast. is a joy know. and a treasure <laughs> and the best co-host of co-hosts. Aside from you, of course, yes. Liberty. At this, you know, very moment. That's not, that's not right. You're already on the show. You don't have to be nice to me. It's fine. <laughs> well, I'm going to start telling you about books. But before I do that, I want to tell you about today's sponsor. Today's episode of All the Books is sponsored by HarperCollins and Rogue to Ruin by Vivian Lorette. 
Best-selling author Vivian Lorette returns with Rogue to Ruin, an enemies to lovers tale about a woman who finds herself engaged to the handsome former boxer who owns the gaming hall across the street from her family's business. I just want to say someone spelled it hell in the notes, and I was like, the gaming hell? What is that? <laughs> oh, goodness. When a vile suitor from Ainsley Bourne's past reappears, she hastily claims an attachment to the first man who comes to mind. Reed Sterling, the devilish brute that has been unintentionally sabotaging her matchmaking agency with his unsavory establishment. Pretending to be in love requires a convincing charade. But with every scandalous kiss, Ainsley starts to wonder if Reed was ever her enemy at all. If you love Jane Austen's Emma, you will love this because she and Ainsley have a lot in common. Both women think they know what's best for everyone in their lives, but have no idea what's best for themselves and neither have had the best luck with love. Rogue to Ruin is your must-read Enemies to Lovers book of the summer, plus a marriage of convenience. That is Rogue to Ruin by Vivienne Lorette, and we thank them for sponsoring. All right. Oh, my goodness. It's so hot in here. Did I mention it's like 85 degrees in Maine, and it's like 930 at That's night? Nuts. So hot. So I, yeah, I am so excited. I just read this book this afternoon. Like, I just got it in under the wire. Also, I'm so confused because Rebecca ha- had to go somewhere next week when we normally record, so we recorded before like, next week's show before this one so i don't know like what day it is i accidentally talked about two of this week's books on next week's show it's all a big mess but i read this book this afternoon to fill in for one of the ones that i accidentally talked about on the other show it's so good it's called mary lou is everywhere it's by sarah elaine smith it's a debut novel and i loved it it's narrated by a young girl named cindy she is 14 years old she lives in rural pennsylvania with her older brothers Their mother is often gone for, like, months at a time. She goes off looking for work. She leaves Cindy in uh, the care of her brothers. Uh, She gives her brother, like, a big envelope of money and says, you know, here you go. Like, they're, they're, like, in their early 20s now, her brothers, and Cindy's, like, 14. Uh, But at this stage in the book, um, the money has run out. Their mother hasn't returned. They've been sneaking into this fishing hole on someone's property to, like, get food and clean up and... The electricity comes and goes, and so the brothers are mowing lawns. Cindy, like, hates her life. She is not thrilled with being her. You know, she's, but she's, she's like, she's a 14-year-old girl. And she's also looking back on this, like, in, this, in the book, she's, like, looking back on everything that happened. So it's interesting to, like, hear her, her perspective now. But, you know, she's really unhappy with her life. She wants to be someone else. She wants something glamorous. She wants more. Um, and then something happens in their town. A young woman named Jude Vanderjohn, who uh, went to school with her brothers, has disappeared. Um, Her brothers, Virgil and Clinton, are around Jude's age. Virgil and Jude actually dated for a couple of years. And the story is that Jude went camping with a bunch of her friends and they had to leave her behind because her car broke down and she was never seen again. And so they get this like big news at the, at the town store. Everybody's talking about it. And the way she describes it is amazing because, you know, Everyone's saying these sad words, but their eyes are filled with excitement because this is like big news and nothing like this has happened before, you know, and and she's talking about like how different it is between what they're saying and what their face is, is expressing. And Cindy, so like Cindy's like 14, she's left without a mother. They, her father is nowhere in the picture and she's sort of craving a new life. And she ends up spending time with Jude's mother, Bernadette, to the point where she moves in to Bernadette's house and starts wearing Jude's clothes and dyes her hair the same color. And it's sort of like this bizarre maternal child relationship that is filling a need for both of them. But of course, like it, you can't, it can't last, you know, it's, it's, we don't know what happened to Jude. 
Um, it's so good. The writing made me want to punch myself in the face in like a totally awesome way. I was so entranced by her writing. And the book is like a tad, it can be a tad uncomfortable at times because, you know, like being a teen is, a, is uncomfortable. And I think she just absolutely nailed it, you know, and ultimately it's about children of neglect and poverty, you know, with no self-worth and, you know, it's about female bodies and it's about missing women and desire and, you know, loss. It's just, it's so, so, so good. I'm like actually like leaning back in my seat, like putting my arms in the air as if anyone can see me being like, so good. Um, but the cats are agreeing with me. The cats are nodding. Um, so it is called Mary Lou is Everywhere and it is by Sarah Elaine Smith. Do you feel like it had, it sounded like it had kind of Hitchcockian overtones, if you will, like in terms of like Psycho and Vertigo. Did did you find that or is that just sort of uh, a a broader theme? Well, uh, will you lose respect for me if I've never seen no, a Hitchcock movie? Absolutely not. Um, I cannot. I cannot. Actually, I take it. I take it back. I've seen Rope. So I mean, yeah, it's like it's like a little weird, you know. Like she's sort of replacing this girl in her house, and yeah, it's a bit uncomfortable. But um, so yeah, I'm with okay, yes, awesome. I think that 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 in fact was like, the point that I was talking about with <laughs> the girl replacing the other person. In terms of, I feel like that is a frequent. Uh, theme picked up in Hitchcock. So, but that's immediately what I thought about when you were talking about that. Um, that sounds great. So, yeah. um, my, I don't even know exactly where to start with my first pick for this week. It is called, there's so much information <laughs> that it is nonfiction, but I do have some fiction in this list. So there's so much information in this book and it, I, there was so much I didn't know that I'm just like, oh my gosh, I need to tell people who might already know, but here we are. So the book is Radical Ritual, How Burning Man Changed the World by Neil Schuster. Uh, if you're like me, you're like, oh my gosh, Burning Man, I don't need to hear about this book. However, okay, uh, I went in thinking Burning Man was a music festival, and that is absolutely not true. So that was point number one where I was like, oh, I am wrong. What happened was in 1986, Burning Man, which is this eight-day event held annually in the western United States in the temporary city Black Rock City, which is in the Black Rock Desert of northwest Nevada. So it began with a few people on a beach in San Francisco. Like, literally, the founder was like, I want to go burn something on a beach. And they got this like pile of wood, basically, and burned it with just a small group. And now it is this, like, 70,000 people attend this annually. And sure, there's like a lot of other stuff going on with that. But that alone, I think, is amazing because you have like you have just someone having an, a, like a basic idea and then they just do a small thing towards that. And it emerges into this just like giant event that, um, again, for better or for worse, is a thing. So I learned some other things about Burning Man, which, again, I thought was pretty much just like this drug-fueled romp in the desert. Um, one of them is that it has 10 principles, which I was like, I again, I thought it was a music festival. I didn't know it had any principles, let alone 10. But they include like radical inclusion and radical self-reliance and self-expression and communal effort. One of the biggest ones is gifting, which is that participants are encouraged to participate in a gift economy, which I was like, oh, like bartering. And I looked it up and it was like, it is not bartering. So that was amazing. They also are very much about like leave no trace. And they they have people who walk around with sticks to pick up what they call moop, which stands for matter out of place. Like that thing is not supposed to be there. It is a moop, which I find the most charming thing about Burning Man. 
thus far that I have learned. Mm. Um, the other, like, I don't know. I'm trying to, like, pick and choose some, like, cool facts that uh, were particularly salient from this. One of them is they had, like, this amazing city planning. If you look at an overhead shot of this, like, 70,000-person, you know, temporary city, it's in a crescent shape which actually not only looks cool, but is really functional, according to this book, which is somewhat biased towards Burning Man. But um, it like de- they dealt with all these issues regarding like noise and like people wanting to have like EDM parties by just facing the speakers at the edge of the camp, facing towards the desert, which I was like, great job, guys. Anyway, so Neil Schuster, who wrote the book, has attended this festival six times. He's not really positioned to be critical of it, um, but I feel like a lot of the culture already is that way, (laughs) including, again, kind of myself, but not so much that I'm not now like, uh, be interested in checking out Burning Man. Maybe not to attend full time, but I would like give it a look-see. So he basically is trying to talk about all the reasons that it's really interesting and all of the things that it has done to the culture and the way it's still affecting things. They started this nonprofit called the Burning Man Project, um, and they're trying to kind of bring this ethos into the world. One of the things I was not thrilled about is he doesn't really talk about um, the overwhelming whiteness, I would say, of Burning Man. It's it's a very, um, I think as of 2019, it's like 76.6% white. Um, and then... Uh, that's been like going down over time, which is great. But then also the median income of people who attend for the household is $101,000 and the U.S. income is 59000 So it's like they have these like um, like really great inclusive principles, but also it's like very white and very wealthy, <laughs> like I would say overall. Um, once more. However, uh, I think it's really, really awesome. It gave, like, the book as a whole, it gave me this whole new perspective on this thing that I kind of just knew about from, like, cultural jabs. And I was a big fan of it. It was really readable. Just going in knowing that, again, the author loves Burning Man and approaches it in a somewhat scholarly way, but also is uh, just a big fan. So, again, that is Radical Ritual, How Burning Man Changed the World by Neil Schuster. I had no idea that my high school experience could be boiled down to one word. Moop. (laughs) (sighs) Uh, Moop moop is indeed the the best part of that book. Yeah. I definitely want to read the book. Still don't want to go to Burning Man. Understandable. But I don't want to go any place where there's like more than like two people and several cats or something. So that's just how I am. Um, moving on, my next pick is Speaking of Summer by Kalisha Buckhannon, and I didn't mean to read several novels about missing women this week, but that's what happened. Um, this is about uh, twins named Autumn and Summer, and one night, they live in Harlem, and one night, Autumn goes looking for her sister, Summer. They live together in the on the top floor of a Harlem apartment building, and she goes looking for Summer and realizes the rooftop is open. The, it's been snowing. There's one set of footprints walking out to the edge of the building and no return footprints and no sign of summer. Um, she calls 911. They can't figure out what happened. There's no body. There's no blood. There's no struggle. There's no anything. Um, the, you know, the, There's nothing to show like what happened to her. Uh, so they were very, very close. Like I said, they were twins. They sort of had that twin bond. Um, summer was more of the flightier one. She was kind of less reliable um, their mother was very sick the year before and passed away. And Autumn was saying like she had to kind of be the one to make all the decisions because if she relied on Summer to do it, it would never have gotten done. 
Um, Summer is an artist. She's left behind like all her paintings and her artwork and all her, her supplies. Um, and she just, Autumn doesn't know what happened because she and Summer share everything. So she doesn't know like where she could have gone. She would have found out, you know, if something had happened or if she was in trouble or, or, you know, she's like talking to the police about this. She keeps visiting the police saying like, are there any leads? Have you heard anything? You know, and, and they're trying to, you know, the police officer she visits with is like more understanding than most. And he's, you know, telling her, you know, like we really have tried like all this stuff, but there's nothing that shows us anything. Um, so Autumn like spends a lot of her time looking at the internet. She looks up crimes that have taken place in Harlem. Um, you know, criminals like date, like violent crimes, just trying to figure out like what is going on. And then we also find out that a little bit into the book that there is a reason that Summer might have taken off, but Autumn is not telling anyone, not even the police. And she's just determined to solve the puzzle of Summer on her own. Um, I found it really interesting because uh, before I started the book, I read the author's bio and Kalisha Buchanan is also a true crime expert. And she appears on many shows to discuss cases that involve um, crimes occurring happening to women um it's not a fast paced thriller like for some reason i got uh i think somebody called it that somewhere in some blurb i didn't get that impression at all. it's more like literary mystery um and it's about sisters and i just i thought it was beautiful um you know trigger warning there is discussion of violent crimes against women um if that's something you're sensitive to um, but it's just beautiful it's speaking of summer and it's by kalisha buchanan uh, if I may ask a question about this, is is the is the like mystery easy to guess? Like if you're sort of reading it, are you are you like, oh yeah, this seems like no. on track? No, no, that's great. no because like you have a set of you have like a set of footprints on the roof in the snow, like walking to the edge, but like she's not, you know, they don't find her anywhere, you know, she's not on the street, and there's no footprints coming back. So like, where did she go? That's such a good setup. All right. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, my next pick is the novel Rather Weird by Andrew Caldicott. So this is uh, already out in England, but it's out July 30th here, which is very exciting for all of us. The way that this starts is it is 1558, a year that we're all interested in. And there's this <laughs> big astrological event that happens and these uh 12 incredibly gifted children with like obviously there's one who's evil are born and then banished by tudor queen mary the first and of course if you as we all are are a fan of the year 1558 you know that that's the year that mary the first dies and her half-sister elizabeth the first takes over as queen of england so it's like what is elizabeth gonna do with these children you gotta read the book so when the children are initially banished, though, by Mary, they're sent to this little English town called Rotherweird, and no one really knows what to do with or make of them, but they go to this, there's this man, like this old man named Sir Henry, who's taking care of them, and he's trying to teach them, but then there's kind of this, um, I guess, like Grindelwald, if you will, to Sir Henry's Dumbledore, who's trying to twist the children for his own ends, and then it's like, who's going to win? I don't know. So four and a half centuries later, all of a sudden in the book, we go from 1500s to present day. And rather weird, as this town has this one big rule, which is that no one is allowed to study the town or its history. No one knows Jack, and they don't know why they have that rule. So the last history teacher at the school got fired for looking into like history 
Like he was trying to find out some information and they were like, nope, you're out. Can't do that. Only modern history. That's it. So this new history teacher is like kind of our um, entryway, like entry point into the town. So you like follow him in and you're like, oh, this is weird as he's thinking this is weird. So he's our identifying guy. He's kind of like this average hapless, maybe like Hugh Grant, but a little less charming kind of guy. And he's sort of thrust into the middle of all of these events. And like at the same time as he arrives, there's this really wealthy, creepy guy named Sir Veronal Slickstone, which is a gross name. So he That's shows up name. with this pretend family that he's paid to be. <laughs> Oh, of course. Liberty Slickstone Hardy. I forgot. I'm sorry. That's really embarrassing. Uh, so he has um, he's paid this like m- this wife and child to be with him and like pretend to be his family. And you're like, why? That's nefarious. What's going on? Then he has something to do with the town. But like when you get there, you you don't know. And then he doesn't really know because he has some kind of brain block. But he seems very evil. And like whatever he's there to do, it's not good. So as you go on, like, they slowly reveal more and more. And essentially, there is this other world. There's a portal and there are monsters, which you're like, wow, that was out of left field. And it kind of is, but in a cool way. So there's also, like, a giant weasel man who speaks Latin. Basically, Rather Weird is just plunged in mystery because no one knows, like, the history of it or what these weird stones found through the portal are, um, which is, uh, they're bad. They're not good. But basically, it's got a lot of characters who are involved. So I'd recommend, if you're reading it, doing like what my Victorian lit professor recommended about Dickens novels and just writing down the character names as you go with like maybe a little note next to it being like, here are one or two salient features. Um, Check it out. Rather Weird by Andrew Caldecott. At the beginning there, it sounded like a 16th century Umbrella Academy. Like, yeah. But then it changed. Then it changed. Also, my adult life boiled down to two words, brain block. Thanks for helping me figure out so much stuff today, Alice. (laughs) (laughs) So my next pick is in paperback this week, and I did not read it in time for the show when it came out in hardcover, and I read it after, and I loved it. I didn't know what to expect, but I loved it. It's called An Absolutely Remarkable Thing, and it's by Hank Green who, if you know John Green, the author, is the brother of John. They do the vlog together. I'm afraid I don't know that much about their YouTube, whatever they're doing there. Uh, I apologize. But I do know that much about them, is that they're related. And this is Hank Green's debut novel. And I I, I loved it. So it's about a 23-year-old woman named April May. She is a design student who's working this soul-sucking job at a startup uh, and she's working, she, she lives in New York City, and she's working one night. It's like super, super late because she's trying to finish this project. It's three o'clock in the morning, and she's walking to the subway, and she realizes that she has just walked by a 10-foot-tall samurai metal robot. And so she stops and, like, turns around and goes back to look at it because she realizes she's like, this city is just like, look at all these people walking by this giant art installation. Like, no one is paying attention to this giant robot. Uh, and so she goes back and she like studies the the robot and she's like, you know, in awe of it. And like whoever created this, it's like so beautiful. And she's like touching it. And she's like, it feels really warm, even though it's like freezing cold out. Like, how did they do that? It's amazing. So she calls up her friend, Andy, who is one of her friends from 
art school and she says, come here with your video equipment and, you know, let's do this thing. And he's like, why? What are we doing? And she's like, you just, you want to see this. Just come here and do this. And he shows up and he's like, holy smokes, a giant samurai robot. And they make this video. He has like a YouTube channel and they're just like goofing off. And so they decided to make this video where she's talking about this robot and she calls it Carl. And they make like this little video where she pretends to interview Carl, who doesn't say anything because he's a giant, you know, robot. And she's talking about this art installation. And then they wrap it up and she goes home and she goes to bed and she's super tired. She sleeps until two o'clock in the afternoon. And by the time she gets up, she is now famous. Their video has gone viral because she seems to have been the first person to put something up on the Internet about Carl and Carl's plural, because it turns out that at the same time that the giant robot appeared in New York City, 60-something of these metal robots have appeared around the world. And so everyone's like, this is crazy. How did someone pull this off? Like, this is an amazing work of art. Like, this is an incredible feat. And the security footage in all these places where these robots appeared all cuts out for, like, five minutes. And then the robots are there. So, like, somebody spent, like, a ton of money to, like, pull off this prank. And it's amazing. And so now she's getting asked to be on TV, her and her friend Andy, because they were the first people to sort of post about it on the internet. But also the news shows have been using their video illegally. Like they don't have permission to be showing this video. So they are like getting all this money from the news. They're like, we'll be on the news show. You have to pay us a lot of money because you're using our video and then we won't sue you. Like Andy's dad is an agent uh, or a lawyer. And he's like saying, like, you know, you got to take him for everything that you can. So She's not really, April's not really sure she wants the fame and the money, but she kind of does. And she wants her chance to make her mark on the world. You know, she wants to do something. She doesn't know if like the thing she wants to do is like, you know, become famous and get all this money and use it for good or like become famous and like be public and make a statement and use her voice for good. Um, but she also, she and her friends also know something else about these robots which I'm just going to say is called the Freddie Mercury sequence, which is awesome. And so they're not, they're trying to like figure out like who and what is behind the Carls. Um, I really, really liked it. I thought it was really fun. Uh, like Mary Lou is everywhere. This book is looking back now after the fact that all this has happened, which I really enjoyed. And I like that. I like getting like a different perspective. Like when people are like, okay, this is what I did. And then here's where I went wrong. Or here's what I thought, and boy, wasn't I naive, and like I like reading that. Um, but it's a really dead-on book about celebrity and privacy and responsibility and the internet. April is a person who has not really had much of a social media presence, and so she doesn't understand. She starts getting hate mail from people saying, like, you were so mean to me on Twitter, and she's like, I don't even have a Twitter account. But because she became famous, she was on TV, people started impersonating her. So it, it, he really captures like what it's like to be a person in the 21st century. Um, and the internet and, you know, having like no privacy whatsoever, you know, she's like going to be uh, on the news and, and she gets an agent and the agent's asking her all these questions about her past. Like, is there anything that you could have done, you know, that's going to come back and bite us later? You know, it's, it's really, really interesting that way. So it is called An Absolutely Remarkable Thing. It's by Hank Green and it is out in paperback. Gosh, you know, I don't normally read things by either of the greens, not as like a conscious decision. They just don't really cross my path, but that sounds really good. And also though, if I were in a city and one of those guys appeared, I would immediately think of the Cybermen from Doctor Who and get really freaked out. I'm just saying. It's true. Um, it could be like that. 
Well, let's see. Yeah, I'm glad that they seem to be a force for good and not uh, robots of evil. Although Are they? That could also be a. Oh, oh. oh. Did I say anything? <laughs> really? That's no. No, that's a good point. Uh, what a cliffhanger that is. Everyone should read that book. Or, or am um, I just making it up right now? Or have I already <laughs> forgotten what we were talking about? <laughs> okay. On that note, my next book is This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El Motar and Max Gladstone. The reason that I – so, oh, yeah, this came out July 16th. I picked it up for this podcast because I read a review from Booklist calling it a twisting, sapphic, time travel fantasy love story. And I was like, that's amazing. (laughs) I like all of those words. So (laughs) I think that my initial thought after like reading this was, did you see the movie Spy Kids? No, I have not. Okay. Well, any listeners who have... (laughs) You remember how in Spy Kids, Antonio Banderas and Carla Cugino were spies on opposing sides and fell in love, and it was the best part of the entire movie. So, yes, this is that, but with ladies, which is great. But like futuristic kind of robot tree ladies, which I will explain. So essentially, there is a time war happening in the... Well, you want to say in the future, but then, you know, it's like a time war. So it could all it's happening at all times. And it's got these two sides, which seem to boil down to basically like technology versus nature. Uh, that age old problem enmity. There we go. In the midst of that are these like two excellent operatives who are on opposing sides and they are nicknamed blue and red just to make it kind of easy for us because it's a little bit of a complicated story. Um, so one day after destroying the other side in a battle, Red, who is the tech-centered one, finds a letter on the field, like, just lying there, whatever. And it says, burn before reading, which is already, like, that's intriguing. So she does, and it's a note from her counterpart on the nature side of the war, whose name is Blue. And so Blue is reds like nemesis and equal and all the things that make for this good matchup so in this letter she's kind of blue is sort of taunting red and i think you know kind of being like well i actually won this thing but like great job and like now because i wrote this letter for you maybe your side's gonna think that you are in cahoots with me so haha so but red is really interested in this and she's like wow because she doesn't have anyone who's like on her level of amazingness so they start writing these letters that at first are again kind of like taunting the other one and then they and they conceal them in like weird places like in goose feathers but not like it's not like a paper letter they're all like oh gosh like one is like the smoke from a volcano right and like the way that she like set up the smoke to come out of the volcano because of manipulating time it was like the a letter and one is like berries like you eat the berry and as she eats it she can read the letter it's amazing and weird like really weird but great so they keep altering the like thread of history there's a lot of talk about going like up thread or down thread or like like going from thread to thread so they change it in these tiny ways that basically are based on the butterfly effect so there's for example this early human needs to hear a sound in a cave because that will like confirm this thought that he has and send him down this path and like all this other stuff will happen but like the the sound has to happen for him to like start all of that so that's their kind of mission and sometimes they'll be in a time situation like in shakespearean times for decades 
in order to accomplish this like one moment. And so they keep jumping from situation to situation like that while again, like leaving letters for each other and falling in love. And it's just really weird and interesting. I really enjoyed it. And I keep thinking about it after (laughs) I've read it. Like I love those books that sometimes when I was reading it, I was like, I don't know exactly how to feel about this book. And then afterwards, I just keep like parts of it keep coming up in my brain, which is awesome when that happens. Um, Kelly Sudaconic called it poetry disguised as prose fiction, which seems really accurate. So let's all just go with what Kelly Sudaconic said. Um, I wasn't as into the love story part as like the kind of like vague world building that was happening. And that's again, like the part that stayed with me. It's awesome. It's really short. It's like a little novella. So pick it up. It is called This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El Motar and Max Gladstone. And speaking of really awesome little novellas, I just want to quickly mention today because the fourth book in the Tensorate series is out this week. I love this series. I know I've mentioned it a million times. I'm going to mention it again. Uh, the new one is called The Ascent to Godhood. It's there by J.Y. Yang. And I love these books. There was The Black Tides of Heaven and The Red Threads of Fortune, which both feature these twins that were the children of the Empress in this amazing fantasy land. And she gave them over to the monks to be raised in this deal that they kind of made. Um, and the Empress was evil. And there's like they grow up and they're cool and they have powers and there's a revolution and they were so cool. And I was like, nothing is going to be cooler than this. And then the third one came out and it was called The Descent of Monsters. And there were monsters. And it takes place like much uh, sooner, much sooner than how you say present day. Um, It's like in the future and there are monsters and it's really cool. And now this new one is The Ascent to Godhood. And it's the story of the protector and her tensorates and she has died. And now her nemesis is very sad because she's lost her nemesis and she's kind of mourning the loss and remembering what the protector was like as a young girl. The world building in these are amazing. You don't like I normally will tell you if you have to read a series in order, but you don't actually have to read any of these in order. They all stand alone and they're all incredible. They just, they're novellas. They go so fast. They're, they'll give you whiplash. They're so fantastic. And I'd like to think that they are going to keep releasing these, that they're going to keep writing stories in this, in this uh, fantasy world forever, you know, but eventually they'll probably move on and write something else about something else. And I'll be sad, but we will still have these. So it is the Ascent to Godhood, the Tensorid series by J.Y. Yang. And that was another nemesis book. Which is, uh, I feel like this links a lot with the Time War thing. I'm just saying. Um, I love the strange love that happens between a person and their nemesis. It's just, uh, it's my favorite. Okay. Before before you talk about your next book, can I just say, I don't think that there has ever been a book on the show that someone else talked about that was so in my wheelhouse as this one that you were about to mention. Oh, wow. That's uh, kind of a lot of pressure there, Liberty, but that's fine. <laughs> um, okay, so my last pick for this week is Deadly Aim, the Civil War story of Michigan's Anishinaabe shoot- sharpshooters by Sally M. Walker. So this is um, aimed kind of more at like a middle grade audience. However, <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, well found there, Liberty. So... Oh, yeah. 
this is about the more than 20,000, um, well, it's much narrower than this. However, starting out with this info, more than 20,000 American Indians served in the Civil War. So this particular book, Deadly Aim, is about the extraordinary lives of Michigan's Anishinaabe sharpshooters. These, uh, it mainly focuses on Company K, which was an elite band of sharpshooters, and Daniel Mwakewena. So Company K was made up of 139 enlisted Anishinaabe men and one officer from the lower and upper Michigan peninsulas. So this company, at the beginning of the Civil War, right, it's like 1861, they've got all this tension going on between the North and the South. At the very beginning, they were like, great, yes, we are excellent at shooting guns. We would like to enlist. And they were denied. Michigan was like, nope, sorry, that's it. It's super sucky. So by 1863, right, the Union forces are suffering these like mounting losses. So the army is like, um, okay, yeah. And they allow Native peoples to enter the armed forces. So Company K is able to be a thing. So in terms of like why um, they would want to join the Civil War, right, because it's like both North and South were kind of being terrible to uh, Native tribes, the reasons vary uh, that like in the books so of some of them are they hoped to negotiate better treaties with the North um, than the currently terrible ones in place. Um, and then some people were saying that tribal heads were warning that if the South won, they would most likely be enslaved. So the Anishinaabe soldiers who fought in the Civil War knew that the experience could help to strengthen their claims of citizenship. So they were really hoping for like this dual citizenship that would provide these rights and protections associated um, with state and later national citizenship. Um, and it turns out that the Anishinaabe in the first Michigan sharpshooters were amazing marksmen, which you can read more about in Deadly Aim. And then the other one of the other main stories about this is, um, again, Daniel Mwakewena, who is this chief who killed more than 32 rebels in a single battle, despite being gravely wounded. So he's kind of like this, um, I was going to say mythic hero, but he's not mythic. He's real. <laughs> so just a hero. Just a hero. Um, if you want to learn more about the amazing Civil War Anishinaabe sharpshooters, which you should, you should read Deadly Aim, the Civil War Story of Michigan's Anishinaabe Sharpshooters by Sally M. Walker. I'm looking forward to getting that and adding it to my very, very large collection of Civil War books that I now apparently just acquire for my cats to chew on. It's like they know that they're my favorite ones, so those are the ones that they like to chew on the most. So it's really an honor for those books. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I, ha I have to get another case, though. I have, like, two cases full, and I need a new case, which is awesome. So I was excited you that you were going to talk about this. Yeah, no, donate that Civil War collection someday, Liberty. Oh, love, yeah. I love I'm, a good They're going to be like, this woman loved reading about the Civil War, and her cats loved chewing on them. So it is, it is kind of fun, though. Like, we have... You know, people who are friends of my boyfriend who come over to the house that I'm, you know, I'm not familiar with them or like delivery people come over and they'll say to him like, wow, you're really into the Civil War. And I'm like, ha ha. So you'd think, but you're wrong. <laughs> and he's always like, no, it's her. <laughs> oh, it makes me laugh. I will. I've only done like highlights of Ken Burns's The Civil War because then it always bum like bums me out too much, so can't get through all of it as of yet. Uh, well, I mean, 
I cannot quite put my finger on why I find the subject so fascinating um, because it's just a bummer all around, just, just all the time. But I don't know. I just love reading about it. So those are our new books. What are you going to read next? So I have recently ventured into the realm of audiobooks. I have not done them for like the vast majority of my life. And I recently was like, you know what? This actually is a very helpful medium. So um, I just started American Heiress by Jeffrey Tubin, which is about Patty Hearst or Patricia Hearst, as she apparently actually wants to be called. And it's been thus far like early on really interesting i did not know that much actually about the real story i pretty much just knew the drunk history segment on her and uh there's been a lot of good information so far yeah i don't know that much about her either except from serial mom i think is is basically my extent of of patricia hearst knowledge so i do have that book around here somewhere though yeah, well, it's John Waters. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to read American Dirt by Janine Cummins, which comes out on January 21st of 2020, which people just keep telling me is amazing and is going to be this huge book. And the blurbs say it's already being hailed as a grapes of wrath for our times and a new American classic. So I have attempted to pick it up a couple times uh, and then work reading gets in the way. So... It's like I come back like sometimes like I'm like I'm gonna read this book and I tell the internet about it, but then actually I'm like, oh shoot, I have this work that I have to do, so then I put it down. It's not because I wasn't enjoying it, but I haven't even actually started it. I'm making all these excuses and telling you I don't know why. Anyway, so that's what I'm gonna read next. <laughs> Alice, it has been a delight to have you on the show. I hope you'll come back and play with us again sometime. I mean, 100% Liberty. Anytime you awesome. have me. <laughs> So thank you to our sponsors, Versify. The Versify podcast is available through New Hampshire Public, uh, not New Hampshire. I'm in New Hampshire. This is available through Nashville Public Radio. And thank you to HarperCollins and Rogue to Ruin by Vivian Lorette, which is available now wherever books are sold. You can drop us a line at all the books at bookriot.com. You can find me on Instagram at Friends and Comes Alive. Alice, where can people find you on the internet? Um, I'm on if Twitter and Instagram. Oh, I 100% want people to find me. Um, I am on Twitter and Instagram at It's Alice Time. Because it is. And, awesome. And if you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books out today, we just don't have the time. But you can read about more titles out now in the show notes of bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And in the meantime... Happy reading.